to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Today, my guest is Professor John Whittle. He's a professor in the School of Computing and Communications at Lancaster University in England. John tells a story that's full of fascinating shifts and turns, of taking action, of prioritising work-life balance, not just for himself but in his research and in his role as head of school. And he shares lots of really practical tips throughout that I'm sure you'll find useful. Enjoy. So um, my, my guest today is Professor John Whittle from Lancaster University. Welcome, John. Thanks for taking the time to Thank talk. You. Thanks. Uh, just for context, can you give people just a very sort of short potted history of your background and sure. where you're at now? So, I mean, I did a PhD in Edinburgh mm-hmm. um, back in 1998, I finished, in artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Then I almost left academia at that point, actually, and almost went to industry, um, but ended up being offered an opportunity to go and work for NASA Ames Research Centre in California. Mm, wow. Moved there, yeah. spent about six years there. Um, decided it was slightly different weather to Edinburgh indeed yeah a lot warmer Um, kind of decided to move on from there because I wanted I was considering moving back into academia Mm -hmm. Um, I was doing research but not teaching at NASA Um, and I was also um, I I wanted to do some traveling so what I ended up doing was to combine the two and I managed to get myself a visiting professor position at two universities in India and went to live in India for a year Um, which satisfies my, satisfied my wanderlust, but also gave me an opportunity to start teaching some courses and see if I liked it. Um, That's a great way to bring together lots of things that you wanted to do and a yeah. very practical solution. And it was actually surprisingly easy. I mean, I yeah. didn't know anybody in India, yeah. so I just kind of shot off some emails, um, ended up at IIT Kanpur and IISC Bangalore, and they were over the moon to have someone come from overseas to yeah. spend a few months yeah. with them and kind of work with their students yeah. and so forth. So it worked out really well. Um, Make it happen for yourself. Yeah. And then I guess based on that experience, I thought, yes, I do want to go into academia. Mm. Yeah. Um, so spent a lot of time applying for jobs in the US, um, completely unsuccessful. The first round, I did what a lot of students do and just fire off a lot of applications mm. and got no responses. Mm-hmm. And then kind of realized that that wasn't a very effective strategy. So I changed my strategy, started thinking, well, who do I know or who do I know that would know somebody and started sending out some kind of personal uh, messages. Um, And then long story short, that that strategy worked. And I ended up as an associate professor at George Mason University in Mm -hmm. Virginia. Um, Two years into that role, I was contacted by Lancaster University because a chair position, a uh, full professor position had opened up. Um, and had and you know, did you know people at Lancaster? I, I, kn- I did know them, yeah. but I, I, hadn't, I, didn't, I, kn- I know them relatively well, but not super well. Um, and they basically said, would I be interested in applying for this full professor position? Mm. I was quite young at the time. I was only 34 at the time. Yeah. So my initial reaction was, um, I think you've got the wrong person. Wrong person you know? yeah. <laughs> um, but I Are kind you of... Sure you meant me? Yeah, exactly. You know? But I kind of went along with it and you know, not really thinking about moving back to the UK. My, my wife's American. Um, but you know, we, we kind of went along with it. One thing led to another. They offered me the position. Then after 
a week of sleepless nights trying to decide if we were going to move, we, we ended up saying, well, let's go there. And we had a three-year plan. We were going to go there for three years and then come back. And that was about nine years ago. There you so. go. <laughs> and then, then I became head of department. So I'm now head of department in the School of Computing and Communications, oh, okay. which I've been doing for two years. Right. So yeah, quite, a, quite, quite a journey. Yes, you know. indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess you turned up to the interview. If you're thinking that, you know, did they really mean me? How were you turning up to the interview, sort of relaxed and... Well, it was kind of interesting, as it turned out, because um, about a week before the interview, I got an email from them saying, mm. well, we've got a slightly tricky situation mm. because one of the people that you put down as one of your referees is also applying for the position. Mm. Um, this was somebody that I knew very, very well, was yeah. much more senior, already a full professor, and very, very well known in, in the field, someone that I looked up to and was a kind of mentor to me. Mm. Um, so at that point, well, I thought, well, this, this is obvious what's going to happen. Um, so I, I suppose, in a way, that kind of made me more relaxed in the interview because yeah. I went yeah. along thinking, well, this will just be a good experience of yeah. interviewing yeah. And, and they're clearly not going to offer yeah. me the job, but that's fine. Um, but they did. Yeah. Um, so that was quite a surprise. But that's interesting, isn't it? That thing of taking the, having the feeling like the pressure's taken off yourself yeah. to perform yeah. enabled you to perform clearly, you know, um, in an authentic way that people could see what, that's right. yeah, um, that's right. what you had to offer. Indeed. Yeah. But you've made a big journey research-wise as well, because you said you did an AI degree in Edinburgh. Yeah. And if we look at your research page now, you're talking about digital, you're talking about, and you're a professor of software engineering. Indeed. By, by formal title. Yes. But if we look at your webpage, <laughs> you're talking about interdisciplinary research yeah. and your passion for crossing transdisciplinary boundaries and you're doing digital brain switch projects and, yeah. you know, you have a work-life balance blog. Yes. Tell us how that transition came. Yeah, I mean, I, I get, I, I, what I'd say to people is I get bored every five years or so. I mean, mm -hmm. um, I'm not one of these, you know, the classic classical way to make it in academia was to pick a kind of niche topic and then drill down in that topic yeah. over years and years and years and, and slowly build up your reputation. Yeah. Um, I have not done that. Um, I've jumped around from fields, yeah. from AI to software engineering, to HCI. Because yeah. um, here we are sitting at a, a, an HCI conference. Indeed, which, which you know, is, is, yeah, I'm still an outsider in this community, really, mm. although getting into it now. Mm. Um, and I suppose I've done that for a few reasons. One is because I kind of get bored after five years and want mm. to go and do something else. Mm. Um, one is because I get frustrated and mm. I realize that, you know, that the things I'm trying to do are just you know, not going to happen or too big. Um, also, I think because I've gradually moved from being quite hardcore and technical. I mean, my, my PhD was in um, automated theorem proving, so very mathematical. That's um, amazing. And then, yes. but gradually moving kind of to the more human side, so then going to software engineering, which is yeah. more about teams and, yeah. and people. And now more recently, the HCI work we do, we're again, very multidisciplinary, working with all kinds of groups, ranging from the homeless to autistic adults, um, to community groups, social enterprises, and using lots of co-design activities. So I've, I've, I've made a conscious choice in a way that, whereas I started my career um, doing very technical things, yeah but feeling like I wasn't necessarily having much of an impact yeah. to yeah. moving towards where I could still do technical things yeah. but work with people at the same yeah. time. So even if ultimately that research didn't go anywhere, I was still 
making an impact on those particular people that I was working with. So making an impact is clearly really important to you. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason why I'm an academic is because I think like a lot of us in academia, we want to make a difference to the world. Um, and the challenge actually as an academic is that it's a, it's a very long time scale to make a difference to the world and 99% of the research ultimately doesn't. Yeah. Um, so I think one way that I found to combat that and to feel like I'm contributing something is, yeah. to, is to work directly with people. Yeah. I share um, a similar sort of research approach of you know, being eclectic in a way. But do you think that, I mean, that clearly hasn't impacted your career trajectory given that you became a professor at such a young age? Or did, I mean, did, was it only becoming a professor that enabled you to have the freedom to then jump around? Were you jumping a little bit before that? No, I was, I was, I was jumping even before that. So, I mean, as I said, my PhD was in automated theorem proving. When I went to NASA, it was more... It, it kind of started off in that direction, but then moved away in software to software engineering. Um, I mean, it's certainly true that once you're a professor, you have a lot more freedom yeah. to be eclectic. Yeah. You don't have to worry so much about tenure, things like that. But um, I guess I've managed to do it through a combination of being lucky. Yeah. Opportunities have come up. Uh, but also, um, you know, being quite... Um, being, being quite focused on when you go into a new community, knowing how to kind of network in that community, knowing who the kind of influential people in that community are, making sure that they kind of see, see your work and things like that. So as an example of that, when I went into software engineering, um, there's a conference in software engineering called the UML conference. Yep. Um, and I first went to the UML conference in, I think, 2001. Um, in 2002, I went back and happened to find myself at a lunch table with all the kind of steering committee mm -hmm. of the conference and they started having a conversation as steering committees of, often do which is oh, where yeah. are we going to hold this yes. um, in two years time and I just kind of piped up and I was living in San Francisco at the mm -hmm. time and I said well you know I'll organize it in San Francisco if you want and they probably loved you well they, they, you know it, they, they didn't immediately jump on me okay. um, but you know Surprise. they kind of said oh okay that, that's kind of interesting mm -hmm. but they didn't necessarily know me very well but so it could have ended there but what I did when I got back, I kind of um, I followed up with an email saying, oh, just, just to let you know, I was actually serious about that. Um, and then um, that led to a, a kind of com further conversations and a visit by a member of the steering committee. We looked around the area and then I, I ended up being the general chair for that conference, which was career-wise the best thing that I did, um, you know, because I got to meet everybody at that conference yeah. by manning the registration desk coordinating things so by the end of that you know that year I, I knew I knew the whole field um, and that was that was a much better way to get into the community than you know spending years writing papers and hoping that somebody would kind of notice which I did of course as well um, but you know the, the, the general chairing was mm. much more influential. I like the way you've taken control Mm -hmm. at, at different points in your life or at career and things that you want to do, whether it's fine, you know, deciding you want to travel and also want to sort of experience other aspects of academic life or test it out and, and getting a job in India or yeah. doing this that you just talked about with, yeah. you know, and the deliberate choice to follow up with the email. I mean, that's about you taking control and taking initiative and, you know. Yeah, and it, it makes it sound like I have a, a very kind of... Um, 
concrete plan for the ne next ten, 10 years, which, of course, is not the case. Um, and, and another example of that is, I mean, I'm now head of department. Um, and that is another example where I took control. I kind of volunteered for that, which a lot of people don't do. But the, the reason I volunteered was because I was actually quite uncertain about my future, you know. Um, having been a, a, a full prof for about seven years at the time, I thought, well, I can just keep doing this for the rest of my life, or should I think about a career in university administration? And I came to the conclusion that was, well, I didn't know, yeah. but the only way to find out was to try it, it and do yeah. it. So I, I'm, I'm testing that out right now, Good. you know. Yeah. Good on you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're interesting as well because you've worked in very different contexts from the US um, although, and, and India and the UK. Um, uh, Scotland and England. Yeah. And do you think that people within the US tenure track system, do you think you could have done the similar things there or would you have needed to prioritise in a different way from what your understanding is? I'm just thinking yeah. back to some of the doctoral colloquiums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very good question. I don't know that I know the answer. I mean, mm. what, I, what I will say is that... Um, I found the the tenure system in the U.S. quite stressful. So I, I was, because I'd had some years of experience in industry, I was hired in an unusual post that I was an associate but untenured professor. So I still had to go through the tenure process. Um, and, you know, in the, in the first year um, of being an academic, I had the same experience probably of what a lot of new academics have, is that I started applying for lots of grants and was spectacularly unsuccessful. Um, so I, I think that was part of the reason why when this UK um, offer came up, I, I ended up taking it because I was starting to get worried that you know I wouldn't have the, the, the CV for tenure and things like that. Um, and then strangely spent the first year in Lancaster having this, the same experience because again that yes. was a new context, new, yes. new funding body with new priorities and, and, and got quite depressed actually in the first year, yeah. you know, writing lots of grants and getting constant rejections. Um, but the way around that yeah. um, was again I suppose a change of strategy mm -hmm. so I'm, I, I, I there's this thing in the, in the UK that the, the funding council does called sand pits um, yes. which is an unusual yes. funding stream where they, it, and it's to promote multidisciplinary research and they realise that multidisciplinary research won't get funded through t traditional channels so they essentially put out a call based on a theme and invite 30 people from different disciplines together, stick them in a room for a week, get them to work up proposals and then give funding decisions at the end of that. And I ended up going to one of those because I realised that just kind of hacking away at the usual kind of standard mode was not getting me anywhere, yeah. so let's try something different and, and managed at the end of that to, to be leading you know, a, a, a multi-university consortium project that ended up being quite successful and was, was a platform to lots of other things. Great. You know. Was that sort of the, the, the big sort of trigger shift into more of the sort of projects that we see on your webpage? It, you know, it, these it was. I mean, it definitely... You know, yeah, I mean, it definitely put me into a project when I was then working with, you know, social scientists, for example, um, and, and learnt a lot about, you know, social science and, and which type of social scientists I wanted to work with and which type I didn't want to work with. But I think the seed for it had always been there. I mean, even at NASA, I was doing multidisciplinary stuff. You know, I was doing software engineering, but with space scientists or with Earth scientists. Yeah. 
So in working in multidisciplinary teams, yep. you, know, you talk about you know, knowing which sort of social scientists you want to work with, what have been some of the biggest lessons or learning curves for you about how to do them successfully, especially given that you had a coordinator role? Yeah. Um, so I guess there's, there's lots of lessons. Um, I mean, I guess the first thing, it's, just, it's really, really challenging, um, but also um, can be exceptionally rewarding at the same time. Um, I think one of the biggest things I realized with it was that it's more than a terminology problem. So often people say, oh, it must be difficult working with people in other disciplines because you use different words for the same mm -hmm. thing. And, and, and that does happen. It does happen, it? Yeah. but that's actually a fairly easy problem yeah. to solve. Yeah. The, the bigger problem to solve is the fact that it's every, people from different disciplines have a completely different mindset. Yes. And they've developed that mindset over 20 years, 30 years, because they've been trained to think in a particular way. And they're not going to stop thinking in that way in, in a, in a two-year project. Um, so getting over that, I think, is, is a real challenge. So, I, I, so that, that means that some disciplines naturally work better together than others. So I found that um, certain types of sociology, especially those that take a critical approach, don't work too well uh, with computing. But design and computing go very well. They've got a similar kind of way of thinking. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means yeah. it's more challenging. Do you do any particular things at the beginning of projects to try and bootstrap um, some of the sort of, you know, making it easier? Yeah, we do. So one thing that we did in, the, in our Digital Brain Switch project, for example, is we, I, I ran a session um, in the first month of the project where we, we, we looked at what the individual researchers' values and needs were from the project because it was clear that because they were coming from different backgrounds, yeah. they needed to get different things out of the project, yeah. you know, conference publications yeah. in computing versus journal publications yeah. in social yeah. science, but also, you know, their definition of impact was very different. Yeah. So we did a kind of workshop where we stuck lots of post-it notes on the wall and, and said, these are my values that I want the project to adhere to. These are what I need to get out of it. Um, and then we kind of wrote that up into a, a kind of contract yeah. between the researchers that we tried to keep in mind through all the activities yeah. that we were doing. And um, is that something that you've repeated in other projects or is, is that the others? Anything that you've learned from doing that for this project that you would do differently in a next project? Um, we've, we've repeated it in some ways. I mean, I think where we made a mistake with that is that we, we did that work at the beginning. Um, but what can tend to happen once you get into the fray of the project is it, it does kind of get forgotten about. And I think you, you need to plan specific points to come back and revisit that um, on a regular basis. Um, and in fact, some of my researchers have done a better job of this in some of the projects that they've run for me. Um, uh, that, that, those projects, they, they've used that kind of approach more with um, working with people outside the university and community groups and things like that. And, and they've done quite a good job, I think, of, of tracking those values that they've def been defined so they don't just kind of get forgotten about along the way. But I think ultimately, you know, it, 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 because of the nature of the projects, it may just be the case that at some point the direction of the project diverges from yeah. what certain people want. Yeah. And maybe that's okay. Yeah. You know, maybe they just need to leave the project, yeah. you know. Yeah. And the, the other aspect that seems to be sort of a real passion for you is around sort of this work-life balance and the digital brains, which yeah. is sort of a project uh, that is in that area. But where did that interest come from? Where, 
Well, I've always had a very clear separation of work and life. Um, for yourself. For, for myself, yeah. um, I, which I think is where it comes from. So I've, you know, even back to, I can remember when I was 18, um, and my headmaster at school at the time asked me, you know, so, so John, do you think you're going to be an artist or a scientist? Because I was studying both subjects. Um, and I remember very clearly the response I, I gave to him. And my, my initial response, I said, I said, oh, artist. And then I suddenly stopped myself and said, no, scientist. Um, and I didn't know. And that has been the case ever since then. So when I, I mean, I studied mathematics at university, and when I, but I was doing a lot of drama at university. And at the end of my degree, I seriously thought about going to drama school and, and doing a career in theatre. Um, decided not to, but yeah. to carry it on as a hobby. So I've, you know, I, I, I do theatre outside work. I, I do dance outside work. And, and I suppose that's that's where my very clear separation comes from is that you know I, I personally and emotionally needed the time to do both of those things so I had to organize my my life in a way that would allow me to do that and and it's worked you know it's, it's a great release right doing mm -hmm. the, something that's yeah. completely different yeah. so you know you and have creative a, and really. yeah then that's right and especially because in the early days of my career being doing very technical stuff perhaps wasn't so creative, so to or be able to... Or a different form of creativity. Yeah, um, so to be able to kind of leave the office yeah. and, and, and go and kind of yeah. rehearse a play yeah. was, was really good. But it also sounds like there's something about the fact that you had to go and rehearse a play with other people that is a different sort of commitment than saying, um, I've got a hobby of gardening, you know, and, and I will do that after work, because... There's no sort of fixed time where you have to be at the garden to do your gardening. Whereas yeah, that's you true. You have to be at the the theatre for rehearsal at a certain time. Yeah, and it's it's that, and also the the people aspect of it. Yeah. You know, um, you know, uh, computer science can be fairly solitary, at least traditional mm -hmm. computer science, and and theatre is anything but. You know, yeah. you, you you know, it's very interactive and very collaborative. So that, that again, it's kind of satisfying both parts of my brain in yeah. a way. Um, so I guess that's where my kind of interest in work-life mm. balance or whatever you want to call it came yeah, from. I'm not sure I like the two. No, I've, I've seen work-family balance yeah. or, you know, and, and certainly, you know, from, from, the, from the research, actually, from the research projects we've done on this, it's, it's clear that, you know, work-life balance or whatever you want to call it means different things yeah. to different people. Yeah. And for, for, you know... For me, a clear separation yeah. is a good thing, but for others, it's, it's much more of a kind of integrated thing, and, and it's not that one is better than the other. Exactly. So it's, um, a, it's a matter of finding out. It's a matter of finding what's out. What's important to you. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And in fact, that's, um, if I just talk about the Digital Brain Switch project briefly, um, that's really what we were trying to do in that project, because, yeah. again, that was a multidisciplinary project. We did um, a year working with social scientists where we gave um, a range of different people video cameras and asked them to record a week in their life um, and, and capture anything related to kind of um, work life balance mm -hmm, mm -hmm. issues as they defined it as they defined it as they defined yeah. it and then the the original plan was we would take that data and come up with you know uh, uh, some software that would mm -hmm. help people manage their work life balance mm -hmm. what, say 50% here and 40% exactly here. yeah but of course what we found is that everybody had a different notion of work life balance everybody had different concerns about it um, so as a simple example some people um, really wanted to 
try to stop checking email after yeah. hours because um, that would give them a better separation. Yeah. But for other people, it was completely the wrong thing to do because then they'd spend the whole evening worrying about what was waiting for them the next day. So in Digital Brain Switch, we ended up setting up an experimental platform so people could define their own questions, try things different ways, and get some kind of insight onto what worked for them. You know, and that, that, right. So that was the idea. Yeah. You know. That's an interesting shift that you went through as researchers in the assumptions that you went into the project with. Yeah, and, yeah. and it was a kind of classic example, if you like, of, of the kind of challenges that you encounter in these multidisciplinary projects yeah. because, you know, we, 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 us computer scientists went in thinking, oh, the social scientists will throw this data over the fence yes. and tell us what to build yeah. and everything will and be we'll fine. Build an app for that. Yeah, but of course, it's not how it works, mm. you know. Yeah. So, I imagine that uh, on the one hand you're doing this with your participants and asking them to reflect and, and gather this sort of data and reflect on it and that it would have caused you to do some reflection yourself, did it? It did. Um, so the, even the original idea came out of um, reflecting myself. So it, it, the, the project came out of the, one of these sandpits yeah. and, and I remember qu- quite clearly how I came up with the idea for it and you know, we'd spent a, a day with all these different um, researchers discussing various things in this general theme of work-life balance. And I remember going home that night and um, you know, I had all these thoughts buzzing in my head. And I, I, you know, although they were nice thoughts, I just felt like I needed some headspace and I just wanted to kind of turn them off. Yeah. And I thought, you know, wow, wouldn't it be great if, if I had a switch, a digital brain switch, and I could just turn off that noise in my head and, and focus on something yeah. else. And, yeah. and so that became a metaphor. Um, and I went back the next day and proposed, let's do digital brain switch, mm-hmm. which, of course, was, was technically not feasible, but became a nice metaphor yeah. for, what, for yeah. what came after that. Yeah. yeah. So having these interests and believing in the value, clearly, of honouring different aspects of your life and, and needs as an individual. You're now in a role as head of department where you can really help establish and set a culture. Yeah. In what ways have you played out this sort of commitment to this sort of whatever, you know, let's we, we call it work-life balance. Just yeah, but, sure. Um, yeah, how do you play that out within the faculty in trying to establish, in the department in trying sure. to establish? Sure. Um, I mean, I think a number of ways. So I think the the, the first and foremost way is to lead by example. Um, so, um, and, and, and you know, not by going out and telling people, you know, this is this is what I think. But you know, people will tell you based on the way I act. I think. Um, I mean, I I'm very particular, for example, with how I structure my time. You know, one of the challenges of being a head of department is to keep your research going. So I block off Fridays for personal research, don't come into the office. Um, I go to a Starbucks and work from there. I don't check email. Um, and people know this, so they know they can't find me on, on that day. I block off Thursday afternoons for meeting with students and, and postdocs. Um, and uh, so, so it's partly structuring. The other, th- the other thing that you know, is maybe more visible to people in the department is um, I work very hard not to send email after hours, yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, and generally speaking, I try not to even check email or, send, or, or write yeah. email after hours myself, but you know, there are occasions where, for whatever reason, I, I want to do that. But I'm, I never send, or very rarely send the email in the evening. Mm-hmm. What I'll do is I'll schedule to send it first thing the next day. 
and that's actually, it's good for them because yes. they don't get bothered by me and feel like they have to respond. But it's actually good for me because if I sent it, then they'll respond and then I've just got more email yeah. to deal with. Um, yeah. um, and then I've got, I've got other little kind of tricks that I use. I mean, one of, the, one of the, the real challenges actually as a head of department is you get inundated with email and just mm. keeping on top of that is, is a full-time job in itself. Oh, I couldn't imagine. But I realized quite early on that a lot of that email traffic is where people are copying you in for information because they feel like you need to know every little detail. Um, so very simple thing, I've now got a filter on my email that anything that I'm CC'd on will just get sent to a separate folder um, and then I'll just skim through that you know, once every few days. And um, it, it, it really helps um, you know, mentally as much as anything else yeah. deal with the email traffic because you know, it, there's just fewer things in my inbox and fewer things that I have to kind of look at and read and then think actually it's not requiring action yeah. from me. But are there any times, you know, sort of, I'd love to do that, I'm going to try it. Um, but are there any times when you sort of think, oh, I should have actually read that. You know, even though I'm CC'd, it's something I needed to, it would have been useful to know for this other decision I made yesterday. Not really. I mean, okay. I, do, I do look through it, um, but, you know, I, it just takes the pressure off mm. in terms of thinking, well, I have to look through that mm. immediately. And I, and I think, you know, in a way, you have to kind of give yourself a break, and that's yeah. not just for the CC email, but the other email as well, is that, you know, it's okay if you don't respond to someone for a couple of days, you know. They, everybody thinks everything is urgent, but actually it's okay if you, if you take your time and think about something properly. Um, so I, I don't give myself a hard time, you know, if I'm, for example, traveling at a conference and I can't keep on top of my email. Um, you know, it, it's, people will understand, you know. Yeah. Are there any things that you've tried to do that haven't worked so well? Well, that's a good question. Um, For you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I guess the... It's not necessarily something I've tried to do, but I... I mean, I still struggle, as, as a lot of people will, in kind of worrying about things. So, you know, if there's some stressful situation yeah. that comes up at work, you know, um, it, it's one thing turning the email off, yeah. but you can't turn your, your brain off yes. again. You would like your digital brain I'd like brain my digital brain you. switch. That'd yeah. be nice. Um, so, and, and I struggled that certainly a lot with, with that a lot in the, in the first few months of being head of department, you know, worrying and, and also kind of second guessing decisions that I'd already made and worrying, was that really the right decision? Um, and, and I think the, the, the only way that, I can get around that. It's 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 about communication. I mean, it sounds very banal, but it's it's about you know communicating as clearly and as often with people as you can, um, using them as a sounding board to help with your thought process, yeah. keeping them involved in decisions you're likely to make. Um, but there's always going to be cases where you just you just have to make a decision. Yeah because of the timing and somebody's not going to like it. And, and again, giving yourself a break and, say, and saying, you know, you can't keep everybody happy all the time, you know. And understanding that, you know, um, a lot of the time when people are unhappy with decisions that you've made, it may have nothing to do with you. Yeah. And it may be, you know, it may be an, an issue that they have um, or they may be just kind of having a gut reaction and a few hours from now they'll be actually quite fine with that, you know. So it's, it's again, it's about giving yourself a break, yeah. I think. Yeah. So 
there's also a piece there about really watching yourself talk because mm-hmm. all of the circumstances that you've talked about around these sort of thoughts running around your head, they just are. Mm. And it's how you're thinking about them yeah. uh, that can influence whether you're feeling stressed or whether you're feeling like... That's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's an interesting point and I suppose it's a, it's a good piece of advice for anybody just kind of starting out on their yeah. career yeah. Is, to, is to really think about how you communicate. Yeah. Um, so this is one thing you, you very much are forced to do as a head of department because... Yeah. You know, it, it's certainly no longer appropriate to kind of shoot off a kind of angry email yeah. to someone. So you, 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 you become much more conscious about the wording that you're using or to write the angry email, then delete yes. it and write a much yes. nicer version. Yes. And, and, and to do things like accepting the fact that if somebody has written you an email that annoys you, mm. rather than trying to defend against that or mm. to kind of battle against that, mm. it's actually better just to go back and be, be polite um, and, and de-escalate the situation. But I think that's, that's good advice for anybody, really, because certainly, the, the, for example, the early career academics that I've worked with, there, there are some that are very kind of polite and professional in the way they communicate, and there are some that are, are less professional and they let their emotions get involved, and that's not good for them. Um, and, you know, that's, it's, it's, I think everybody should be thinking about that, really, you know. Well, John, the time's ticking on, so we probably should finish. Is there anything that you... Any sort of final sort of thoughts or comments that you would want to make before we just sort of... Um, I guess guess the the only... I mean, I mentioned this because somebody asked me this this last night. Strangely, we were having a similar conversation with some friends over dinner, and and they they were asking me, how do I do this? And I I hadn't thought about this, but I kind of instinctively said that there's, there's three things that are actually pretty simple that you should do to maintain a healthy balance. Um, One is to delegate things to people wherever you can, and obviously that applies to managers more than others, but it doesn't just apply to managers. Um, One is to learn how to say no to things, um, although being careful about the things you say no to, I think that's really about understanding what your focus is and, you know, opportunities that arise. Is is that going to help or hinder that because um, you, you know there's, you can just you know there are lots of glittery balls everywhere yeah. and if you run after all of them you, you're not going to do very well at any of them and the third thing is just to to be organized and I'm not I'm not claiming that I'm the most well organized person in the world I'm certainly not I certainly have my chaotic times but you know you can do very simple things like going through your calendar blocking off time yeah. um, you know block block time for your family why not? We don't do that. Yes. Um, you know, um, you know, so that you can leave early. You know, um, or, or take your kids one morning yeah. to a, a dance class or whatever it is. You know, so those are three things yeah. that are actually quite simple. Um, they're, they're not. They're no-brainers in a way, although quite hard to actually put into practice because it requires quite a lot of discipline. John, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I just, I think everyone will want a head of department like you. Um, and you've just given so many, my head's buzzing with all the sort of interesting ideas and tips for ways that could, that we can just, the small things that we can do that can make a difference. Yeah. Not just for ourselves, but for our peers and colleagues yeah. and our yeah. family and friends. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the only thing, of course, that we, I've, I've, I've talked about this very much, my kind of, personal yeah. view and of course there is the the systemic yes problem of you know yeah. 
getting organizations to change um, to, to, to realize these issues. And I think that's a much bigger challenge. That's a much bigger challenge. That's you a know. conversation I want. Uh, yeah. We don't have time for now, but I it's a conversation that I really want to try and provoke yeah. across the community. How do, we, how, do we, how do we get this systemic change happening Absolutely. that we need? Yeah, indeed. Mm. All right. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, you can subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and you can follow Change ACAD Life on Twitter. You can also go to the website www.changingacademiclife.com.